0: Hi, I'm Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger, and I'm the director of New Wine, New Wineskins. Welcome to New Wine Tastings, where every week we'll have an opportunity to engage people from diverse backgrounds, all in the attempt to build relational bridges through Jesus in contemporary culture. We are desirous of the opportunity to engage in deep and meaningful ways, and we're really thrilled and excited to have you with us. Hello, I'm Paul Lewis Metzger, the director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins. Thank you for joining us for another episode of New Wine Tastings, where we seek to be about building relational bridges through Jesus in contemporary culture as part of the work of New Wine, New Wineskins. And it's a privilege for me to dialogue once again with my long term colleague, Professor John Moorhead, and also uh, more recently, Dr. Joseph O. Baker, who is a sociologist of religion. He is a professor at East Tennessee State University and editor of Sociology of Religion, the journal. And we've interviewed him here before at New Wine uh, Tastings. And today we're dealing with the subject matter of fear and especially evangelicals in fear. And the title of this episode is the only thing for evangelicals to fear, fear itself question mark. Uh, Joseph, this is a really um, pressing issue in our society uh, for sure, and it's also a matter of great import for your own research. Could you just speak to uh, that matter, just what drove you into it, and then we're going to open up some with some other questions about uh, precise aspects of the, the research that John will start off by asking about surveys and, and things of that sort, but just what got you going into this to start with?
1: So this research is in collaboration uh, with three other scholars, uh, Chris Bader, uh, Ed Day, they're both sociologists, and Ann Gordon, who's a political scientist. And they are all at Chapman University in Orange, California. And uh, in 2014, they had the idea to um, start asking questions about fear different kinds of fear. Um, And the idea was to gauge Americans' fears on a whole wide range of subjects. So when we say fear, we often think of like phobias or we may think of it in a a psychological context, which is certainly valid. And we do ask about those kinds of things, but we also wanted to know about uh, partisan fears, um, social fears, um, fears about the environment, technology, um, kind of uh, a more sociological, political take on fear. Psychology is obviously relevant, but we wanted to kind of push the idea of fear into this more social dimension. Um, so they started the, uh, the surveys in 2014 and um, have been doing it every year, 2014 through 2019. Um, and so we kind of are now able to track how there's been changes in fear um how those fears relate to politics um other social consequences that we'll get into but the premise was basically that um and chris and i had some discussions about how we thought fear was a very consequential um emotion and it's sort of a the social consequences of fear but there was less on that than there was on the psychology of it so we were interested in pushing this into that social dimension
0: hmm. Thank you, Joseph. And uh, at some point, it'd be great for you to even speak to the discipline of sociology of religion and sociology, because uh, when I say you're professor of sociology of religion, a lot of people might not really quite grasp what that is and how that's different from psychology of religion or uh, just sociology and psychology and all that. And uh, but, you know, maybe at some point you can share a little bit more about it. But John, You've had a real interest in this subject. I mean, you've been afraid of me for years, uh, concerns about <laughs> my own phobias and, and the like, uh, and just not wanting that to uh, taint you or uh, uh, um, uh, pollute you. So, uh, John, what what drove you to this subject? And, and you're the one who actually uh, reached out first to Joseph. So what what struck a chord with you with your whole emphasis on uh or orthopathy and the emotions. Could you speak to that? And then uh, please ask Joseph uh, a question or two further to the, dis- the discussion.
2: Yeah, first I want to acknowledge that you're a case study in phobias, and so that kind of piqued my interest. And uh, but
0: I am—I I am too. You're not speaking about Joseph. You're speaking about me. About you? Yes, Let's exactly. We're
1: all a case study in phobias. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, well, I've
2: been following uh, Joseph's work for a while online. Uh, he and I have uh, several similar scholarly interests, and uh, we've interviewed him pre- previously uh, on uh, Christian nationalism. And I was looking at his university website and saw his uh, book that he's already mentioned his colleagues that he he co-authored a book called fear itself the causes and consequences of fear in America it came out uh, this year in 2020 and I was intrigued by that in looking at the title and then reviewing the table of contents on the book and I picked up a copy because uh, Paul uh, you and I were involved with the the multi-faith matters team we did a couple of grants to the Louisville institute and in the second supplemental grant Uh, We tried to understand the psychology of evangelicals and why they tend to have negative uh, affective dimensions, negative emotions towards people in other religious traditions, and certain ones in particular, uh, Islam especially, and also atheism. And one of the things that we discovered, Christian nationalism was a factor in that, and also fear, and we'll unpack the specifics of that, but it was that point of connection that there's something in the psyche of evangelicals in our fears, that then brings out these various negative, more apologetically oriented kinds of theologies. And so, Joseph, we wanted to have you back to kind of help us unpack and understand not only general American fears, but also how it might relate to uh, to evangelicals. So with that as kind of the background, you mentioned Chapman University. Uh, They produced, and I've followed this for a number of years as well, the Chapman University Survey of American Fears. Um, Can you talk about how that was created and developed and what are some of the general fears that the leading fears that Americans might have?
1: Yeah. So again, the premise with that was to kind of hit these social and political fears. Um, As part of that, we developed some batteries of questions on things that um, were new. Some of them we picked up, you know, that were existing out there. But so, for instance, um, an important one has been uh, xenophobia. I know we'll talk about that a little more in depth. Um, But to do that, we really like looked at um, how people talked about immigrants in public discourse and what some of the fears expressed uh, often in public discourse were and then tried to get questions that hit at those. Um, You know, and you you pilot test these things to make sure that the questions are working effectively and people understand them. Um, But we also asked some questions um, that are unusual for surveys, but that we had done before, like about the paranormal uh, conspiracy theories was a new one. Um, so we, you know, put some batteries of questions about conspiracy theories on there. Um, so it was kind of a mixture of finding what was already available. And there was quite a bit on the psychological stuff on phobias and things. And so there you're, you're, we're using existing batteries of questions and for others, we're kind of developing new metrics and testing them out and making sure they work. Um, and then, you know, running them, in uh, national samples and getting this data back. Um, And there's, we did some creative things in there. Um, And again, some of it's new, some of it's taking stuff that's already there. So we kind of tried to make this mixture of established uh, research with some innovative dimensions. Um, And again, these are national samples. So they're supposed to be representative of Americans uh, in general, although they're asked in English. So English speaking Americans. Um, So again, the premise was, to try to hit at the idea of fear in a new way to take this slightly different angle on it.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, Go ahead, Paul.
0: Uh, if if you're finished with that uh, line of questioning, John, I'm going to take yeah. it to religion and how it informs uh, cultural frameworks related to fear. Uh, Joseph, I'm uh, reading through Ezekiel presently where uh, God is bringing uh, his people back from exile, and uh, just today I was really reading on the 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 uncommon or the holy and the profane, and you know the whole matter of purification, and the Levites were supposed to lead the people of Israel uh, into a reverential um, trust in God, and and to make sure they understood that distinction between the pure and the impure, and the uncommon and the common, and I think so often what drives us in our fears, and 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 I'm not against this. I mean, I think we have to be concerned for purity in our religious traditions alike, something that Jonathan Haidt talks about uh, and conservatives especially focus on that. But I'm really interested, both as a theologian of culture, as someone who's a professor in religion, I'm really interested in how religion shapes cultural frameworks of fear, uh, how we approach the biblical text, what we see from the biblical text, and here I'm thinking in particular of conservative and biblical literalists, how this particular community would look at fear, how they approach the biblical text, um, thinking about concerns over exile, nation, things of that sort. I hope I'm making sense with all the connections that I'm developing here. But how does religion shape the cultural framework of fears, especially for conservative Christians, biblical literists, literalists among them
1: well i mean you hit on a big dimension there that pollution dimension that you talked about purity and pollution kind of as opposite sides of each other is um very important there in conservative religious traditions because of the sense that there is a one right and true tradition and way and so if um New ideas can be seen as polluting that or diluting that or moving away from what is, you know, capital T truth. Um, And so pollution becomes kind of um, a, people are on guard against that, I guess you could say, almost guarding the tradition in some sense. Now, what we found is that one of the big key sort of theological slash belief dimensions of this is people's beliefs about supernatural evil. So we can think of this as Satan demons, um, hell, to some extent. Um, And that's one of the things, actually, if you look at traditions that distinguishes conservative traditions a lot of times from liberal traditions, is their sense of kind of um, an absolute evil or a supernatural feature of evil that's active in the world. Um, And we found that that then relates to all these other uh, interesting aspects, like how people think about sexuality and ethics. And again, that sort of brings that purity pollution dimension into it. Um, And it has these effects on um, how people think about crime and punishment. So people who have strong beliefs about an act of Satan in the world are much more afraid of crime, um, almost seeing crime as kind of this um, humanly manifestation of that evil. Um, And so for us, one of the things we looked at is that that supernatural evil becomes one of the sort of ideological structures that links to this purity pollution aspect. Um, And I'm particularly interested in supernatural evil, and I know that sounds funny, but as a researcher. um, (laughs) But I've been interested in that for a long time um, in the sense that often I think when you narrow in on what people think is evil, you quickly get to political aspects or you get to these social aspects or communal aspects. Um, In the paranormal book, we talked, we actually did this sort of profile. Um, This was quite a while ago, but Obama and McCain uh, went to Rick Warren's church and were asked about, you know, evil. And they gave very interesting but very different answers. Um, And McCain kind of gave a more um, sort of absolutist view, and he talked about terrorism and sort of combating evil. And then Obama kind of gave this, um, you know, evil is poverty in the streets and we must fight it in that way. But those are very different conceptions of what evil is and how you should address it um and so sometimes when you start looking at the supernatural evil it quickly gets you to the consequential theological
0: dimensions Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. fascinating fascinating we could we could uh, go to great lengths on that discussion even though you said it's dated i mean i think even in the current political cultural situation you know evil as terror versus evil as poverty in the streets uh very um, key differences that we have culturally, politically today that have only built on those trajectories, I think. Uh, so it's, it's in one sense, it's dated, but it's not dated. And I think it's at the heart I think of this the- is
1: something researchers should pay more attention to. I'm always kind of, you know, trying to get other people in my field to pay attention to this. There's been a lot of stuff on God image, which is very important, how people think about God um, and aspects of God. But you know the flip side of that's pretty consequential too um and again it sort of gets you to the heart of things fairly
0: quickly when you start looking at these questions absolutely thank you uh john next question please
2: yeah that's just a quick comment on what you just said there joseph i think it's fascinating years ago i used to be involved in uh what's called the counter cult apologetics community within evangelicalism where they take a very apologetic approach in refuting other religious traditions. Okay. They would label as cultic, and there was a strong sense of battling supernatural evil within that uh, s- subculture of evangelicalism, so much so that uh, in, in the various online forums a couple of the evangelical apologists would draw upon Star Wars imagery and saw themselves almost as that one called themselves Apologedi, Jedi, uh, <laughs> Apologetics Jedi Masters fighting this, this evil with a capital E. So what you're talking about has real serious ramifications. Related to that, um, Paul and I have done a number of uh, podcasts related to conspiracy theories. You mentioned you had some questions related to that in your survey. Um, I'm interested in how conspiracy theories relate to religious conservatives and a question of belief in Satan and spiritual evil. Of course, right now evangelicals Are in a very difficult spot with the way the uh, presidential election looks like it's going to go. Their connection to conspiracy theories and QAnon, and this belief perhaps might be heightened now that Satan, being the defeat of Trump, has has dealt you know the church in America a great blow. Can you help us unpack all of that in relation to conspiracy theories and evil?
1: Yeah. So again, we found that the the strongest connection in terms of religious predictors. So looking at religious characteristics of people. Um, in terms of what was the most associated with a greater belief in conspiracy. And again, um, the supernatural evil was the real key there. There's an apocalyptic dimension too. We had a question about the apocalypse which kind of plays into that. Um, And so if you're looking at religious characteristics, that was the strongest connection to a greater acceptance of conspiracies. Now we ask about a wide range of conspiracies. So we ask about ones that are standard JFK assassination 9-11 9-11 truth or movement, um, uh, some aliens question about alien conspiracies. We ask about sort of a wide range of different types of conspiracy theories. So this was more, you, we sort of made an index of those and then who's higher or lower willing to accept more forms of conspiracy. And the strongest connection to religious characteristics was about people who had these stronger belief in supernatural evil. Sometimes you see a real sp- specific manifestation of that in that there are conspiracy theories about Satan. So satanic panic in the 1980s and satanic ritual abuse are conspiracy theories that are centered around Satan and uh, people who supposedly worship Satan. Um, And so sometimes you actually see a conspiracy theory that's about Satan. Um, But if you look at QAnon, uh, QAnon obviously is very, you know, uh, sort of diverse. There's a hodgepodge of different things going on there. But at root, there's this idea that there is a pure evil out there. And those stories of things like pedophilia in QAnon actually are very similar to the stuff you hear in Satanic Panic uh, about Satanic ritual abuse. And so in a way, QAnon is kind of the, I don't know, I see it as the latest, a new version in some ways of some of the stuff we saw in the Satanic Panic. So there's a direct link there um, in how people talk about QAnon. And again, Satan is kind of like the, the key thread there. And that's not to say people can't come to it from other, Paths, but in terms of religious characteristics, that was the thing that really made the strong connection. So, for instance, um, thinking about Paul's question about biblical literalism, literalism itself didn't seem to matter much once we accounted for the supernatural evil. So, if you're a literalist but don't have this strong sense that evil is, you know, supernatural evil is very active in the world, then it didn't really seem to link to conspiracies. It was the belief in Satan and hell and demons that seemed to link more to the
0: conspiratorial dimension. Fascinating. I'm just pondering uh, the the answer that you've provided. Um, would you say that uh, it's a, a direct link, uh, Joseph, that it's almost inevitable that one who holds to a view of supernatural evil is going to move toward that, or it's just that more prone? I think you were saying more prone to it. Uh, I'm just yeah. curious.
1: Well, you know, as a sociologist, I'm always hesitant to say anything is an inherent link. But I will say this, the connection is very strong. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing that links it, though, is that conspiracy theories operate on kind of a Manichaean worldview, this sort of binary, pure good, pure evil. Mm-hmm. And in the religious world, Satan is often, you know, the key aspect of that. You don't kind of get to pure evil in a religious framework, often without a sense of a pure supernatural evil. Um, So it's not inherent, right? I mean, people can have a strong sense of supernatural evil, but not link it to this. So I wouldn't, it's never a one-to-one, but I would say it's a strong connection um, and that that binary, very black and white worldview of pure good and pure evil is often supported theologically by this kind of like view of supernatural evil. And conspiracy theories almost necessarily have this Binary, uh, good, pure good, pure evil dimension. And so in that sense, thinking about it psychologically, there's a strong sort of affinity between them. I'll use the Weberian term and say, there's an elective affinity between these
0: things. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and uh, before I go to the next question, I just want to tease this out a little bit more uh, as sure. again, a professor in theology of culture. And uh, you know, I, I think in my own work, no doubt, John, you've experienced this too. Um, but when I seek to encourage evangelicals, my own uh, quote-unquote in-group, uh, to think about engaging evil, as soon as one moves it beyond the black and white categories, you know, the the matter of absolutes, uh, and say, well, you know, there can be gradations, um, we might find it even in our own camp. Uh, that, depending on where someone stands in terms of absolutes, and I, I believe in absolute truth, you know, I'll go on record believing in absolute truth, uh, but an absolutist framework or a strict literalistic framework, um, that's that's another issue. And I think those, those have to be teased out and differentiated, to say the least. But uh, that can really cause emotional angst in and of itself, because uh, we tend to, and I can, I think there can be fundamentalists on the left just as much on the right, where it's sure. like we cannot see um, that our own camp—I'll just call it camp—may um, have evil <laughs> embedded in it. Uh, that it's not always an us versus them, just, you know that, but it really is. We're all messed up, and I think uh, what you're saying with the historiography, the eschatology, which we're going to come to in a second. Um, it plays to this kind of binary thinking that can be so problematic. Uh, we need to be thinking about, as Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature and the lesser angels of our nature um, that both are in play for all of us in our own community. So that's just something I'm struck by of the need taking on board with your point to guard against these quick um, moves toward othering the other side and, and, and somehow seeing that we're not also um problematized yeah feel free to comment on that yeah if you yeah no you got right to the heart of it
1: i mean the us and them thing to me is the key um now the thing is that it makes it makes us feel good in some way right to to feel like we're we're the good people and you know we're keeping the evil at bay and so Mm -hmm. from a sociological perspective that communal bonding you can see why people like it and it makes them feel like they're part of something and that they're doing what's good. But as you say, if you try to turn that lens inward a little bit, things might get uncomfortable, right? I mean, but if we're being honest with ourselves, then that kind of communal introspection and personal introspection is needed. Um, But it does require us to think about it in a way that's more nuanced, right? Where there's not just two camps of people. Now, back to the conspiracy theory thing. Conspiracy theories almost necessarily operate on the two camps of people thing, right? I mean, they're very much an us and them. It's a very very binary worldview. Um, And so when you can move people away from the idea that it is just those camps, then I think that link to conspiracies begins to dissipate because now we're starting to think about the world uh, and all its complexity and how do we engage that complexity, whether it's people like us or people different than us, um but that starts to move you away from that kind of like us them uh quick distinction there and i mean i can see why it would make people uncomfortable but i would say that discomfort is probably a good
0: thing it is and i'll just i'll make one quick point and then i'm going to transition to the question on eschatology John's getting a little nervous and feeling I'm no longer part of his in-group <laughs> because I'm not sticking to the questions, because just as we outline them. And he's into really strict boundaries with questions and and such. <laughs> uh, he's a he's a literalist when it comes to the questions. So uh, now, just just on that point, because I'm always thinking in terms of theology of culture and the prophetic work of um, education in the church and the like. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letters, I think, really provides a good uh, guide for us on how to approach absolute evil, because he said, "I'm not even dealing with whether people believe in Satan or not. I'm dealing with really the human condition, and and using this uh, literary device with Screw Tape and Wormwood, and uh, I think it is a very helpful uh, treatise discussion for us moving forward to put that mirror to ourselves, so to speak, and and look, at, look in our own souls and wonder." about as Jesus himself said, the real um, problem of pollution is not outside, it's within the human heart. And I think we need to deal with that regardless of where we stand on absolute spiritual evil, you know, a a spiritual force like Satan. We can differ on those points in the society at large, but regardless, what's the common ground? Let's look at our own hearts too in the midst of it and see that we're all problematized. Uh, And so that leads me to discuss eschatology with you and and John Joseph, and that is um, apocalyptic thinking. As I said, I'm reading through Ezekiel. When I think about apocalyptic literature and the like, I can usually, if I were in a cave for 20 years, and I came out of a cave, like Rip Van Winkle, if I were to come out of a cave, I could know, generally speaking, who America's evil, um, the, 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 the force of evil that America's fighting, in the world at a given time I don't even have to look at the newspaper, I could just listen to preaching about eschatology Gog and Magog. And if it's identified with Russia or China or somewhere in the Middle East, I know who our main enemy is at the given time, the way we read eschatology. And the way we look at city on a hill, the way our own eschatology discussion of the future and apocalypse shaped America's psyche going way back. So um, that said, your study also looked at fear in connection with various forms of apocalyptic thinking. What type of apocalyptic endings are connected to American fears and how does this express itself for conservative Christians?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, just first of all, to comment on what you were saying, that's it, I feel like that's exactly right. That looking at, again, thinking about that dimension of what, is, what are you fighting against? That going to those views of eschatology often get you to the political dimensions and communal dimensions of religion. I totally agree with that. Um, and again, I'm trying to get more people to see it that way in my field, because um, I think there's something to that. Um, but we we look, ask about some standard sorts of things, um, sort of the... View, beliefs about Armageddon uh, that we asked one about like uh, the world will end as prophesied in the Bible in my time. Now that's a little vague because we don't say exactly how. Um, And we ask about the rapture. Um, And so we ask about those standard kinds of things The, the short of it is that most of those tended to go together with those beliefs about supernatural evil. So they were almost kind of like people's visions of the future were strongly shaped by how they were thinking about evil in the world now. You can see that going both ways. Um, If I believe in an imminent Armageddon or the rapture is imminent, then that may shape how I think about evil in the world, right? The idea that the world has fallen, and so we're sort of living in this time of evil. Um, And so I see those as kind of like um, how people are looking at the future based on their views of evil. So they're kind of like this extension and expression of that. We ask about some other ones too, about um, kind of like the end of the world as a natural event and that sort of thing. Um, For conservative Christians though, it was really Armageddon and the rapture, kind of the things you would think, um, almost kind of like the left behind view in some sense. They're still fairly popular um, and tended to link in with this very strong view of uh, evil in the world.
0: Yeah, just to that point before John takes up the next uh, question to ask, Um, Stephen Hawkins, uh, with his concerns, you know, before he passed with the end of the world, we need to migrate to another planet, such as Mars or whatever. You have these apocalyptic visions, it's going to be like you said, naturally, but could be the end of the world, it could be due to environmental um, devastation, uh, pollution and the like. Uh, So you have these different apocalyptic visions from left to right, right to left but as we say here we're we're focusing on um evangelical apocalyptic visions it's it's everywhere present but it just shows up in different ways and different contexts john how about the next question please
2: yeah if since paul went off script i'll go off script before i ask my terrorism question here i think we've got a few extra minutes um you mentioned that you're you're trying to get your colleagues uh in sociology of religion to take on certain research questions um paul and i face another challenge and that is trying to get evangelical theologians and in, in, in other aspects of study in our tradition to engage more with uh, sociology, sociology of religion, the behavioral sciences and so on. Um, so we've got our own challenges in that area. What is it specifically that what does a sociologist of religion do? And maybe that would help viewers and listeners understand in why we're trying to bring that into conversation with theology and the engagement of culture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think of what we do as kind of studying the human side of religion, the human aspects of religion. Now, that doesn't mean we're off limits from studying things um, like the supernatural, but we're limited to how individuals and communities think about those things and how that then affects them. Um, So, we're not rendering a theological uh, verdict on anything being particularly right or wrong. Instead, we're kind of looking at real world consequences of it but that can have um important implications for people in the church um, and i think it it offers a lot of insights for people if you're thinking about um how do certain uh, aspects affect communities or uh what makes groups grow or have unity or the, you know those are all important questions you from the theological angle wouldn't want to give up your theological principles in the service of, you know, something that works as an applied psychology. But the applied psychology is still informative, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I just think of it as the human side of religion, individual and community aspects of the human side of religion and the consequences of that. Um, Now, I understand why there's reticence. And I think the reticence comes from For a long time, a lot of social science of religion was kind of like trying to demythologize, right, like Freud is kind of a famous example of this. We're almost like trying to explain away religion. I would like to say that is not what we're doing here. Um, uh, So I think of it more as, um, you know, what's going on with people's uh, beliefs and rituals and communal dimensions and how does that then affect their lives. Um, and to me, we can do this with religion, we can do it with non-religion. Again, I've done studies of atheists. I can study what atheists believe, even though I know that sounds funny, but I can study that just like I can study what uh, someone who believes in God thinks and how that affects their life and their politics and all those sorts of things. Um, so I, I see it as something where we're trying to see what are the what are the consequences, what are the dimensions, the social dimensions of these things, or if we're thinking about psychology, psychological dimensions. Um, but I understand why people are reticent to take it on because it has that history of trying to kind of explain things away. Um, but I think engaged in the right way, it can be informative for people in faith communities. Um, and a lot of our best practitioners in the field are people who work for denominations or come from um, you know a position of faith. Um, the thing is that when we do the research, we wanna to try to make sure we're looking at what is there and not what we wish was there. Because a lot of times we would like things to be a different way. Um, but we take things for what they are, and then that can be informative for people. Um, so, you know, that's, that would be my, my quick summary, the human aspects of it.
0: And John, before you go on, just to follow up on that, um, you know, just with what you've said here that how our faith can shape these things or these cultural forces, our, our politics, different domains uh, beyond that economics, um, it's also how those different dynamics shape our faith, too, right? Uh, it, it can it, That comes into play as well, correct, Jim? Absolutely. It's a both and. and. And just for what it's worth, yes, I think we're Yes, absolutely. Next. Yeah. Okay. And just further to that, what John was asking you in your response, and then feel free to respond further. Um, I think where I've seen evangelicals engage more, uh, that because it's very tangible, and we hope that people see how tangible what you are saying is to helping us understand how to be better Christians, how to grow in our missional witness and the like. Uh, I had mentioned in a previous episode, I believe uh, Emerson and Smith's book, Divided by Faith, A Sociologist of Religion. And then also yes. uh, Christian Smith's book on related to MTD that he co-authored as well with Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. So it's, yep. it's seen as tangible, it helps the church grow. And I think your work helps the church grow Uh, to become more self-aware? And how can we be more adept in engaging such matters as fear? So uh, Joseph, John, uh, take it away further.
1: Just quickly, I I agree with that totally. Yes, it goes both ways. Um, And another one of Chris Smith's great uh, books is the one about American evangelicalism and battled and thriving. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know Mm -hmm. if you all read that, one, but it's really good. It kind of gets at this sense of, um, battling the outside world, which plays into some of these dimensions we've looked at. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of relevance um, for what we do for communities of faith. And I I understand the reticence, but I, I do think there's a lot of people doing good um, work that can be helpful to people. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, we're not all doing the Freud thing these days. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I appreciate that, Joseph. Uh, I just want to one additional comment here. And what's interesting to me is I look at uh, evangelical subculture and the broader Christian culture. We're willing to look at things like linguistics, historical studies and so on to understand the biblical text. And in missions, we're willing to look at maybe uh, anthropology and cultural studies. Um, but those tend, there's a, a narrow number of uh, academic disciplines we're willing to engage. But if we broaden our our horizons, we can learn more uh, about even our own faith tradition. I'm thinking of Rodney Starks, uh, Baylor University, and his book as a sociologist looking uh, just at the human side of the why did this obscure, marginalized Jesus movement take off and become the major religious tradition it is. And so he says in his introduction, I'm not discounting the supernatural, I'm just saying we're going to look at the human dimension and and the social factors involved in that. So there's, there are great resources here at our disposal in our faith tradition.
1: Yeah. Rise of Christianity is a good book. I am the intellectual grandchild of Rod. So Chris Bader, my mentor is his student. Um, And Rod was, you know, I got my PhD at Baylor. So Rod was there. Um, And so, you know, he, he, he tries to um, sort of pioneer that, that idea that we're looking at this human aspect of it. Um, But, you know, as long as you're um, secure in your faith, I don't think there's anything to fear, speaking of fear, um, from engaging these other uh, ways of looking at religion, right? Um, As long as people are secure in what they believe in their community, you take what's useful about it. And if something's not useful, then you don't have to use it. Um, But I think there is a lot that is useful there. Yeah,
2: thank you for that. Let me uh, transition to our, our question about xenophobia and terrorism. Uh, one of the things in our grant study, we found a fascinating piece of research, and I know I'm going to butcher his last name, Richard uh, simino I don't know if you've seen the piece or if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not. Uh, he did a piece where- I don't he looked, know how to pronounce
1: it, but I have seen that.
2: Okay, where he, he looked <laughs> at evangelical writings about Islam pre-9-11 and post-9-11, and there was this dramatic shift pre-9-11 Islam was viewed as one of many religious traditions that evangelicals should be involved in sharing their message with, sharing the gospel with. Post 9/11, it takes a dramatic turn. And now it's viewed much more starkly in terms of being a spiritual evil. Uh, it must be refuted. Um, so, what was the what was it that led to that shift? It was 9/11. That the fears associated, the reminders of death and there was a literal demonization that took place of Islam in the minds of many evangelicals. And some researchers have said that that was a, a 9-11 was a defining traumatic moment for not only Americans in general, but evangelicals in particular, much like other historical incidents, such as the Scopes uh, Monkey Trial and Evolution and things like that. It has shaped and impacted evangelicalism in a a great way that continues in the present time. So connecting the dots to your study, Uh, on fears. You looked at fears of xenophobia, of the immigrant, and of Muslims. Um, How does this come together? How is fear, how has it negatively impacted the perceptions that evangelicals have in the context of immigrants, and and certainly particular immigrants?
1: Yeah, so um, we do see a a large rise in people's fears about Muslims, specifically post-9-11. Now, the interesting thing about that is that there was a bit of a lag, um, it wasn't immediate. Um, and even in the right in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, um, George W. Bush was pretty careful about not labeling things as Islamic terrorism and sort of just speaking about terrorism in general. Um, but there's good studies of this. Uh, Christopher Bale is a sociologist who has this book called Terrified. And it's all about uh, media response to 9-11 and Muslims specifically. And he kind of shows that over time, um, while there wasn't initially a mainstream media negative response to Islam, that over time, these fringe organizations, which had a very kind of like stereotyping Muslims as particularly prone to terrorism, as particularly problematic, as particularly um, anti-liberal, anti-modern, this sort of frame, that those fringe frameworks became mainstream over time And then in survey data, we do see people's concern about Muslims begin to go up as these frames become more prominent. Um, And in our own study, we do find that consuming certain types of media makes people more concerned about um, Islam. So for instance, um, people consuming uh, Fox News or listening to talk radio are much more likely to be concerned about Muslims. Um, So you do see that there was this increase in concern about Muslims. Um, Now, to link this into xenophobia, the larger, so to make this distinction, when we ask about um, Islam, we would ask specific questions like Muslims are more prone to terrorism. We're almost asking to see if people are stereotyping Muslims. Um, The the immigrant questions were more, and we would phrase these just as about quote unquote immigrants, so as not to type them in a racial or ethnic way specifically. So we would say things, you know, like, immigrants take people's jobs or immigrants don't assimilate or immigrants are more prone to crime. Um, And what we found is that by the time we were asking these questions in the mid 2010s, um, especially among white Americans, views of Muslims and views of immigrants went together. Right. So if we're thinking about this statistically, if I put in questions about immigrants and questions about uh, Muslims together, and ask, do these make an index together? The answer is yes. So people who tend to be afraid of Muslims also were more wary about just generalized immigrants. So these two things have kind of fused amongst white Americans where um, immigrants, if they're sort of generally feared, Muslims become a specific instantiation of that. Um, And you can actually see this really clearly um, in Trump's primary strategy by which I mean the Republican primary, um, where his two key sort of policies were travel bans and border walls, right? One is about uh, immigrants from, you know, Mexico and South America, and the other is a ban based on religion. And those two things sort of went together hand in hand. Um, And when we actually asked people specifically about those policies, and they went together with all these other questions, right? They were just kind of like policy expressions. Of concern about immigrants and concern about Muslims. So, to answer the question, concern about Muslims has gone up, and more recently has fused with this kind of generalized xenophobia amongst
0: white Americans. Very striking and sobering. Uh, you know, and if we if we press home further on this, earlier in the discussion I mentioned uh, reading on reading in Ezekiel and the discussion of the common and the uncommon. Uh, the pure and the profane sacred and profane Um, you know there is discussion in ezekiel about you know foreigners should not be the ones who are you know leading in temple ritual and the like you know uncircumcised of the flesh and uncircumcised of the heart and yet scripture also has major discussion about the orphan the widow the alien in their distress and remember israel you too were aliens, you were strangers, you were foreigners in another land, and 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 I think we could just do a fascinating study, both in terms of um, biblical theological study, and also sociology of religion study, how people process the various biblical texts, because the there's something there for everyone to find, and I'm not saying find it well, but you know, we can pick and choose and such, but the Bible is really complex in how it engages these subjects, and I I I think as we process this, and again, as someone as a theologian of culture, thinking, okay, how do we prophetically engage the church, learning from sociology of religion and accounting for social psychology as well, you know, that played well to certain conservative audiences with the kind of put up the walls, you know, uh, boundaries, borders, uh, you know, bans, bound up with purity codes and, and things of that sort. Um, How do we engage that? And I think one, as we come to the close, and I'm thinking for our viewers and listeners, um, one cannot discount, one should not discount people's fears. Fears can be helpful, Mm -hmm. fears can also be very damaging. And I think if I, for example, someone who's very concerned about immigration reform in a holistic manner and uh, I love Emma Lazarus's poem, uh, but that didn't even, even in and of itself, at the Statue of Liberty was posed right between the Chinese Exclusion Act and also carving up of Africa um, by European powers in America. Right, those two events uh, book ended Emma Lazarus's poem by a year at the Statue of Liberty. That's just really striking America has a very conflicted and complex relation historically and presently to, to these matters with immigration. That said, if I am passionate about, we need to have a much more compassionate, discerning approach, not just open up the borders and let everyone in. No one's ever said that in my estimation, but you know, but to be discerning, careful, yet compassionate. Um, I cannot discount people's fears. I, I have to account for them. If I just say, oh, that's just stupid, that's just wacko, that only intensifies and reinforces. I think we have to account for them, but also in a sense say, let's put them in proper context. They can be helpful when we are in danger, but also very damaging. What have you seen, Joseph, where the negative aspects um, of fear, the lesser angels of our nature um, have had real negative import for religious communities? I'm thinking here, and. Perhaps even for evangelical Christian communities, um, because fear creates more fear so often, whereas uh, perfect love casts out fear. Where, with the negative consequences, have you seen it having real damage? And how can we learn from that so as not to continue to reinvent the fear wheel? Yeah. So,
1: um, let me get, I'll get to the negative consequences. I just want to affirm what you were saying. I totally agree with the idea that it's a question of, what do we emphasize and which fears do we and again you're totally correct that dismissing fear doesn't work right that does not just saying don't be afraid that but engagement we know does work right to the extent that people can genuinely engage say so for instance if people are fearful of muslims if they actually know people who are muslims it changes their perception completely right because they're just people And you know, they care about their families and they're good upstanding members of the community. And that changes how people think about things, not by dismissing it, but but by engaging it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right that it it can be positive or negative, right? I mean, fear is, it keeps you alive, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's its sort of biological feature. Um, Now, but because of that, it's prone to all kinds of false positives. And that is sort of a, it's a biological bug, right? Because if I better to guess it's a snake and it be a stick than be wrong and be dead, right? So the fear works in that way because it's a more effective long-term strategy. In the short-term though, there's a bunch of negative consequences that come from that. So it kind of works on, if we think about cognition, this, John, this is some of your uh, psychology dimensions. It's kind of a hot cognition, right? It's a, it's a quick, immediate you know response to threat. Um, And so oftentimes the way to deal with it is to engage that cool cognition and evaluate it and, you know, sort of process that fear that comes through. When we give way to just allowing the hot cognition to happen, though, a lot of times you end up with things like stereotyping out groups, right, Um, where you just feel like they're different from us and so we must resist it. And so and again, sociologically speaking, it creates a strong sense of in-group. So, you know, it's functional in a sense. Um, but in the greater sense of what's the, you know, what's the ethical way to engage culture? It's very dysfunctional in that sense, or in a social sense. So some specific ways we found that this was negative um, is that uh, this fear of the other often has these political consequences. So this can be through um, policies that target specific minority groups or things like that. Um, some other ways we get this, uh, I'll give you an example. Fear of crime is a, a great example of this, where people are rightfully afraid of crime. But we ask people about, like, is, is crime getting worse or better? And almost everybody says crime is getting worse. All data from the FBI say crime has been getting better. Violent crime has been going down consistently since the so the peak of this was the late 1980s, and it's been consistently going down since then. But people are still very afraid of it. And if I'm very afraid of crime, then I may do things like disengage from my community. Um, you know, I may purchase firearms. I may do all kinds of things that are based on this perception that is not matched to the reality. Um, so it can have all these negative dimensions, right? Like disengagement is a real key one too, thinking about the conspiracy theories. When people believe in conspiracies, often they disengage from their communities or their, you know, sort of civic engagement. Um, And that has all kinds of negative consequences. Um, Now, again, this is not to say it's all bad, right? Because some fears might be legitimate. Fears about climate change may motivate people to take action, to pass policy that could be positive. Um, Thinking about the current context of the pandemic, it may make people engage in mitigation behaviors that are beneficial to everyone. Um, So we have to live with fear, right? You can't get rid of fear and the question is how do we live with it in the way that is most beneficial for us and our communities um and i you know i to me it's part of it is taking that hot cognition part and understanding it and then engaging it rationally with sort of you know your ethical and sort of cooler cognition functions to figure out which of this is beneficial and which of this is just something that seems like a threat but is not actually a threat
0: but just on that point when we think about Hot and cool, cold—not cold, but cool—cognition. Um, going back to matters of terror or warfare, um, enemies like that. You know, you mentioned global climate change. You mentioned uh, COVID, the global pandemic. Um, we could think about world wars, right, and and terrorist attacks and such. How do we bring into play the the cool um, response mechanisms? I think of the Marshall Plan. World War II. I remember when I was studying in England uh, for my doctor work, my German teacher said America was brilliant when it came to what they did post World War II. Um, how they fostered, I think it was cool cognition. So, how does America engage the concerns over terror? Do we just put up walls more? Do we just you know, get more arms, more militarized? Or do we try and put in place structures to build trust, to build understanding, to, to engage? And I remember President Bush saying we needed to do more of this uh, after 9-11 with countries predominantly Muslim. And so with the Marshall Plan, just very quickly, regardless of what people think about America and World War One or World War II, uh, as my German teacher said, it took this vacuum that was created after Versailles in World War I with uh, Germany where they were just ransacked and told you got to pay up, pay up and it created a vacuum for a Hitler to arise. That didn't happen after World War II and it didn't happen in Germany, it didn't happen in Japan. Regardless of what people think about America's role in all these things, it's just a matter of cool cognition was in play with the Marshall Plan in my estimation. And that's a more effective way of addressing America's fears when it comes to safety for America if we're talking about America or for the world at large.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. So now of course there has to be, you know, a security dimension, right? Mm-hmm. So terrorism is a threat, you must be prepared. Absolutely. But the the trust and the diplomacy and all those things go so much farther to keeping that stuff in check. You can actually see a really good example of this in Bush's response to 9/11, in particular with the invasion of Iraq, which turned out not to be connected to 9/11, and then spurned all this further terrorism, like with ISIS creating this vacuum there where they could operate. So, and then you see, but there's a sense that there needed to be revenge, and again, that's kind of a hot cognition thing. But you see that 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 sort of firm, tough action then has these negative consequences, and it didn't really seem to make anybody safer. Um, and so there must always be a security dimension, you know, a police and military dimension where people are prepared and aware and monitoring. But then also the diplomacy and trust is the thing that actually keeps these things in check usually, right? I mean, you can stop some terrorist plots through, uh, you know, counterterrorism measures, but more of that stuff is stopped through diplomacy and trust. Um, now, the hard thing about that is, You can't point to those things, right, because they didn't happen. So you can't say this many lives were saved through diplomacy. But still, we know that that's the case, that we know when that stuff is in place and you keep these certain types of terrorism and uh, insurgency movements in check more. So it's a a matter of uh, having the preparedness as the background, but on the front foot, making trust and engagement kind of the key. and so, you know, I, I think whenever we react out of fear alone without stopping to think through what's going on and what's the best way, then often you get these negative consequences down the road from that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're near the end, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask John for closing thoughts in just a minute, but maybe, Joseph, you would be willing to analyze at some point John's in my relationship because our own tactic with the hot and the cool sensors is we keep our friends close and our enemies closer st- still. So we we engage one another in diplomacy just to, in a sense, mitigate against uh, the fear factor of one another taking over and just really uh, causing major destruction. So uh, with that, John, do you have any closing thoughts? And then Joseph, uh, feel free to share as well as we close.
2: Yeah, I just want to point out, Paul was just talking tongue in cheek, but there is there uh, some truth there in the, in the sense that I think with the topic of fear, evangelicals do operate a lot out of those hot forms of cognition. And what we try to do is recognize it rather than dismiss those fears and say, okay, let's, uh, let's try and introduce other elements. Let's try and understand it and see how we can help evangelicals work through it. And that means things like dialogues and hospitality dinners, that, that contact hypothesis, bringing people together so they have uh, personal understanding, which then lowers the the fear and the prejudices and things like that. So what you've brought to us, uh, Joseph, in this, I think is, is very helpful uh, to what we're trying to do, and hopefully other evangelicals uh, will find
1: it helpful as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you guys are doing, you know, uh, great work on that. And again, the thing for me that I've sort of come away from all these studies with this is that you know, fear is always with us and it, and it should be, right? I mean, again, it's there to keep you safe in some sense and it has these useful functions. Um, but we also have to make sure that we are not um, being led by it without thinking through what the consequences are and what our morals are about this, right? Is, is my fear leading me to close myself off to people where I should not be or to uh, disengage when I should lean into it. Um, and it's you know it's easy for that to happen. And that's, like you said, that's true for everybody. This is not unique to evangelicals in any way. This is a human thing. Um, and it's sort of up to us as individuals and communities to think through what we're afraid of um, and which of those fears are well-founded and which of those we should confront and try to address in a proactive way.
0: Well, Joseph, thank you so much for your insights, your wisdom, we deeply value your research and we think it has huge import for our society at large and also for the evangelical Christian community that we're a part of. And uh, on behalf of John and myself, we wish to thank you, Joseph, and all those who are watching and uh, listening to uh, this particular uh, videocast podcast of new wine tasting. So for John Moorhead, Joseph O. Baker, Paul Lewis Metzger, thank you for joining us and blessings to all of you.